0: For those of us remaining in the room, our scripture today comes from the book of 1 Peter. I invite you to turn there, if you have your Bible. It's right near the very end, and we'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble in a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that... Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Well, God... Our great Father, our Savior, our friend. We're gathered here today because you are worthy of worship and because you have called us. And we gather believing that maybe. You want to do something in us today. If not, then there's really no point to come and sing and listen to someone talk. If you aren't here, and if it's not possible that maybe you want to do something today, then, then this is all for nothing. <clears throat> and so we call on you to fulfill your promises to transform us by the proclaimed word and the movement of the Holy Spirit in us. Father, bind my lips and my tongue that no false word might pass from them. Rather, let it be just your word. Holy Spirit, you can commune with each of our hearts directly. And so please do that now. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. Amen. Have you ever been in a place where you just felt like, man, I really don't belong here? Have You ever had that experience? A few years ago, I was 19, over a decade now. A few years ago, I was 19 years old, and my best friend David was about to turn 18, And for his 18th birthday, me and his older brother wanted to celebrate as big as the big 18 deserves. And so we hatched a plan. We were going to take a road trip from College Station, Texas to Mississippi. Now, why might we do that, you might ask? Well, we got in the car and drove to Mississippi, and we wound up at the campus of Ole Miss University. And there was one very specific reason why we did this. Not because David is an Ole Miss fan, but because Manziel Mania was sweeping the nation. Johnny Football Manziel was sweeping the nation. The, the Fightin' Texas Aggie football team, there we go, had just joined the SEC and we were supposed to be the underdogs, right? And, and we were supposed to lose. They were saying, you're not ready for the SEC, but we come into the SEC and we get this new kid. Johnny Football, as he began to be called, and he was absolutely incredible. I mean, he was electrifying as a football player, and he was worth traveling from College Station, Texas, to Ole Miss University to watch the game, and and let me tell you, this was an incredible game. In the fourth quarter, just a few minutes left, the Aggies were down by a score, and Ole Miss successfully downed a punt on the A&M one-yard line. If you don't know football, this is basically the last nail in the coffin for a defeat. You, you get the ball on your own one-yard line. I have a picture of the first play of that drive, and Johnny Manziel is like almost out the back of the end zone. He's so far into his own territory. It was not looking good, but I think you know... How the story goes. Johnny orchestrated a masterful, game-winning touchdown drive that ended in a touchdown catch from Ryan Swope. uh, And we went absolutely bananas. All right, me and my friends, we're sitting there amongst all these Ole Miss fans, and we are going crazy. It was an insane environment. But I remember a moment watching that game where I, I looked down at my own maroon and white colors, and I looked at my friends, and there were about five of us, and then I looked around at a sea of blue and red and white Ole Miss fans, and I thought to myself, we really don't belong here, do we? And I mean, these people, maybe the new generation of Ole Miss fans are nice. These people were not nice to us. They were hurling insults. They were jeering and mocking. When when Ole Miss looked like they were going to win, when they downed the punt on the one, they were just rubbing it in our faces and then just as angry and the other side after we won. Didn't totally feel like a safe place to be, and I just remember this feeling. I really don't belong here, do I? Well, the book of First Peter has this prevailing theme throughout the book, and it's the theme of citizenship. Where is my allegiance? Where do I belong? And the recipients of the letter, Peter calls them exiles. In First Peter chapter 1, we realize that this is not just a book, a narrative account being written, but this is a letter. Peter is writing a letter, uh, it says, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And at first glance, it might seem like these people are exiles because they're citizens of Jerusalem, and they have been scattered, as Peter says, into all these other provinces, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and they've been scattered, and so they're living as exiles, or other places in the letter it will say foreigners, or the biblical language says to be a resident alien, to live long-term in a place where you don't belong. And at first glance, it might seem like he's writing to Jewish citizens who are now scattered living as resident aliens. But when we take a little bit of a closer look, we realize that that's actually not what he's talking about. See, we learn that Peter is writing to a group of Gentile Christians. Now, to be a Gentile in the Hebrew culture means you're not a Hebrew. So anyone who's not a citizen of the nation of Israel is a Gentile, regardless of what country you're from. And so it seems like perhaps even these people who are receiving the letter, Peter names them exiles scattered throughout these other provinces that actually may well have been their homes, where they were born and raised as native citizens of Pontus or Galatia or Cappadocia, and yet Peter names them exiles scattered. Now, why is that? Well, the type of exile that Peter's talking about, the type of citizenship here, is one that transcends nationality. It transcends birthplace. It's a spiritual citizenship. And Peter is writing to a group of people that at one point their allegiance was to the kingdom of this world. But they have been given new birth into a new citizenship, into a new kingdom. And their allegiance is no longer to the kingdom of this world, but to the kingdom of God. Now, the prior football analogy doesn't quite do justice to what this experience would have been like for the recipients of this letter. So let's try this one on to get a more picture. Imagine, if you will, that you're going with me to the a and Ole Miss game, but instead of at Ole Miss University, it's at Kyle Field in College Station, Texas, all right? And so for the first half of the game, you are in the majority. You're sitting there, you're wearing your maroon and white, you're amongst a sea of maroon and white, and everyone is celebrating the things that you're celebrating and rejoicing over the things you're rejoicing. They're mourning the things that you're mourning, and you have kind of a oneness with the group, But then at halftime, something interesting happens. All of a sudden, you notice a different color on your jersey. You look down, and and you're no longer wearing the maroon and white. You're wearing the blue and red of Ole Miss. And you realize, I'm no longer a fan of Texas A&M. I'm a fan of Ole Miss. Now, I'm not trying to say that A&M is the kingdom of God and Ole Miss is the kingdom of the world, or the other way around, but just go with me, if you will, for this experience. It would be absolutely insane if at halftime in a game, your fandom, your allegiance changed, right? And you spent your whole life, maybe your parents were a and fans, and you spent your whole life learning the, the rituals and the songs and the cheers and, and the gestures of being an Aggie fan, and then all of a sudden at halftime of this game your allegiance is no longer to the Aggies. It's to Ole Miss. And on the fly, as the third quarter starts, you're having to learn how to celebrate the things that the Ole Miss fans are celebrating, to mourn the things that the Ole Miss fans are mourning, and to no longer celebrate with the Aggie fans and mourn with the Aggie fans. And you're having to learn new gestures, new ways of celebration, new songs. That'd be very difficult, Right? Well, this is more so the experience of the recipients of Peter's letter. They have grown up with allegiance in one culture, citizenship to one kingdom, and then at halftime in their life, their allegiance suddenly changes and they have to learn a new way of living. This year, uh, we've had an annual theme that sort of governed our sermon series, our worship, for the whole year, and it's the theme, First Love." Maybe you've seen some of the t-shirts around, you've seen the slides, first love, and it's based on the verse 1 John 4:19. we love because he first loved us. And each sermon series of the year has been kind of examining a different angle of this phrase, first love. The first one was How I Met the Father, and if you were here during that series, you heard week after week testimonies of how the different preachers at Covenant first experienced the love of God the Father. speaking of first love in a chronological sense, the first time you ever experienced God's love as a father. And we moved from there, continuing in a chronological sense, but flipping the script into Jesus loves me this i know and and the sermon series this i know was focused on how Jesus loved you before chronologically you ever loved him but there's other ways to think about first love after easter we continued on into god's favorite and week after week we explored the different testimonies in scripture that proclaim that of all of creation human beings god's sons and daughters are his first love. In a value sense, what has the first place in God's heart? It's you. And today we're kicking off a new series, The War of Loves, and it's continuing to think about love in this value sense, but it's once again flipping the script the other way. That amongst all the things that you love, that God ought to have your first love, to hold first place in your heart. This war of loves, 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about it in terms of desires, of longings, the heart's affection being the things that you desire. And we have both sides of the coin in this passage. And the first one is in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes this, Like newborn babies, crave or earnestly desire pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This craving for God, this tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, this is one side of the coin of desires, the war. On love, and we'll get more on that in a minute. The other side is found in verse 11. In verse 11, Peter writes Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, as resident aliens, as citizens of a new kingdom, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your. Soul The biblical language there for wage war means to serve as a soldier against." Peter's writing that "Your sinful desires soldier against your soul, that they come in with guns and swords and bombs, and they are trying to take you down. But this war of loves, it's not so much a war of pain as it is a war of pleasure. What's more, in the face of such sinful desires that are serving as soldiers against us, verse 12 tells us that we are in a hostile environment. More than just our own sinful desires being uh, hostile toward us, it says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans or the non-believers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This war of loves, this war on your soul, this war of desire, each side of the coin presents a version of the good life. And we all want the good life, don't we? And each side of the coin presents a version of the good life. On the one hand, you have the good life that God offers more on that in a second. On the other hand, you have the good life that our old citizenship to the world offers. And we don't become citizens of the kingdom of God until halftime in our lives. And so on the fly, we have to learn to reorient our desires, to celebrate different things. And we don't do this in a vacuum. We do this in the face of our own sinful desires that we've spent our whole life learning to have and in the face of accusation from the world around us. So how can we stand in the face of such hostility? Right? There is so much external pressure to say yes to your sinful desires. And this pressure, it's not just pressure to say yes, it's also pressure that makes them grow and intensify. Right? The more you say yes, the, the stronger those desires get, the harder they are to abstain from. So how can we stand in the face of such hostility? Well, we're going to take a look at three, just three, of the loves of the kingdom of the world. And the first is the abuse of money. Just a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with someone from this community, and he was talking to me about this tension that he was feeling in his heart. He works in sales, and he was saying, Zach, I, I think I might need to quit my job. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, my bosses, they want me to make more sales whatever the cost. And when I go to them and and talk to them about a roadblock in the negotiation, they say, well, well, just tell them this. And I say, well, but that's not true. I said, well, it's, it's not a, Big lie, it's just a little lie, just a slight twist of the truth. And I'm having all this pressure to, to do whatever it takes to make more money. And I want money, I want more money. I, I I feel that within me, but I'm also feeling that from my coworkers. All my peers have no problem doing whatever it takes to make more sales. And my bosses, when I do tell a lie to make more sales, they say, Well done, good and faithful servant. The kingdom of the world loves the abuse of money. The second one is the abuse of sex. I've used this analogy in a sermon before a couple of years ago, but it's so palpable I'm going to use it again. When I think about the TV shows that really are like beloved of my generation, I, I think of three in particular. And I struggle more and more with enjoying these shows, I just confess to you, and with, with telling you that I've enjoyed the shows, because I don't want to encourage bad habits. Um, but these shows are very well beloved, and I've spoken to you, I know that you love these shows too, and so I'm not trying to offer judgment here, but there are three shows, and they all have something in common. The three shows are The Office, Friends, and New Girl. And these are like objectively high quality television, not, not speaking from a Christian sense, but just from a TV show sense. I know not everybody loves these shows, but, but broadly speaking, they're very well embraced, right? They're, they are so funny. Um, but something about each of these shows, uh, in fact, every single episode of each of these shows, they have in common. Each of these shows and each episode within these shows glorifies the pursuit and abuse of sex. Every single episode, when I preached this sermon, this analogy a couple years ago, I challenged the congregation if you find one episode that doesn't do this, I'll buy you dinner. I have bought zero dinners. And you you can see it. You can picture now. If you've seen this, you know. Every episode is like, how can I get to my next sexual partner, my next pleasure, right? And the abuse of sex in the kingdom of the world just pursues this physical experience of bliss that's momentary, and it's an abuse of something good that, that God gave us. You don't even have to watch TV to be subject to this external pressure. You can just be driving down the road, and you drive past a billboard that has an over-sexualized person. Most of the time, it's women, sometimes men too. And it's just this barrage. Everywhere you turn, you're scrolling social media. It's a barrage. The third that we'll talk about today is the abuse of comfort. Comfort. I'm not saying that comfort's a bad thing, but there's an abuse of comfort, and the most common way that we abuse comfort as a culture is through escapism. And we all have these experiences of of brokenness and pain and anxiety in our life, and we go to escapism. And there's overlap because the abuse of money and the abuse of sex is also a part of escapism, but also just the abuse and pursuit of comfort. There's different escapisms that we go to beyond the first two. One of the most primary, I think, is the abuse of alcohol. Maybe you've been going through your week and things at work are terrible, things at home aren't much better, and you have this anxiety, you haven't slept well the last few nights, and you know in your head, man, a fun night is just a few drinks away. I could forget all of this for a night, and I could find some comfort. I could escape from this anxiety and this pressure, and I I could just find some relief, and I need it so badly. Or maybe it's not something so overtly bad as being drunk all the time, as alcoholism. Maybe it's the overindulgence in binging shows on Netflix or any streaming service. Maybe you get home from work, and your your anxiety is built up from a bad week at work, and at home is not much better, and you know that what you need is to deal with these things that are causing you these problems, but it's just easier to numb the pain by putting on a show. I've been there, all right? I'm not preaching at you. I'm, I'm preaching to me. We have an abuse of comfort in the kingdom of this world. And each one of these things is a twisted version of a good gift from God. See, we know from Scripture that God provides for our needs. And in the society in which we live, you need money to survive, right? You have to have money to buy food, to put a roof over your head, to to pay for electricity, to pay for car insurance and a vehicle and gas. You need money to survive. And so God gives you money to provide for your needs. But he also gives you money to provide for the needs of others. It's not so that you can get more and more money at whatever the cost. And when you know that God is the one who's giving you the gift, you don't have to lie to get more of it. Right? How about sex? Well, God gave sex not so that you can live a life chasing the next experience of physical bliss. Because if that's the end goal then you're just going to go from partner to partner whenever they get boring, right? God gave sex as a gift so that a husband and a wife can experience a deeper level of intimacy than is possible with anyone else in any other way. And in so doing, we get a taste of what it means to be totally laid bare and unashamed because you're loved for you. And that's the kind of love that we receive from God. This is why God gave sex. But the kingdom of this world twists and abuses it. And it comes at us like a barrage. How about our desire for comfort? God created the experience of comfort as a good gift. But true comfort comes through dealing with and being healed of the things that are causing you discomfort and pain. Or... God will actually change you so that the thing that once made you uncomfortable and caused you pain no longer does. But he doesn't do it through numbing. He does it through deep, true healing. And so we have this war on desires. We have the ways of the kingdom of God God inviting us to let his kingdom capture our heart's love. And we have the ways of the kingdom of this world that's inviting us to to uh, have our loves captured by these pursuits of these idols and so many more. And so in the face of such an experience of these sinful desires serving as a soldier against your soul, what can we do? I mean, hopefully, I've captured all of us here. Hopefully, we've all experienced this barrage of trying to capture our heart in some way or another, maybe all of them. And it seems really big, so what are we to do? Well, I mentioned the other side of desire earlier in verse, verses two and three of this chapter. I'll read them again. Like newborn babies... Crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you are a citizen of heaven, which, by the way, a a quick aside, Peter preaches in a way that preaches the message of justifying grace. And this is so important for us, friends. Justifying grace is the grace that says, when God looks at you and you are sinful and messy, he doesn't see your sin and your messiness. He sees the righteousness of Christ. For those who have believed in the gift of salvation from Jesus, God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ, even though you don't really resemble that. And then from that place of this is who you are, this is your new citizenship, you then get to learn to live that way. But it's not the other way around. You don't have to learn to live that way to earn your citizenship. This is justifying grace, and without it, we'd all be lost. But because we are a citizen of heaven, we now get this invitation, a command even, to set aside our old desires and cultivate new desires for the things of God. And at this point, we ask ourselves, in, such, in the face of such incredible external pressures that are just warring against us and, and opposing us and accusing us to try and keep us from turning our heart's affections to God, how can we fight back? What is it to make war against the flesh? What could be possibly strong enough to win our heart's affections? Yesterday uh, was our family Sabbath, and on Saturdays, we take a Sabbath, which just means a day to kind of disengage from the work and the, the stress of life and from media and just kind of lean into the things that are most important, into our family relationships and relationships with close friends and with the Lord. And we were enjoying a nice, restful Saturday, and my son, Ellis, he's 22 months old. He'll be two in August. Uh, he just woke up from his nap and we were sitting in the living room and he was uh, sitting in my wife's lap on the couch and I was on the floor a few feet away and he was reading a book and I was just looking at him. I was just watching him read this book and I was feeling a lot of love for my son. And then he did something that just blew me away he paused reading his book and he looked up at me and he's learning to speak, he's learning English and and we're having more and more conversations and it's so wonderful and this is the best conversation we've ever had. He looked at me and he pointed at me and he said, buddy? And I said, yeah son, I'm your buddy. And then he pointed at himself and he said, buddy? And I said, Yeah, of course you're my buddy. And let me tell you, my heart soared. I mean, I was flying free from every care and concern I've ever had. I felt so much love for Ellis, I could hardly contain it inside my body. And then I thought God if I look at you and say buddy do you feel this way And if I look at me and I say buddy do you say yeah of course you're my buddy and do you feel this way about me And the reason I tell you this story, friends, is because the most wonderful experience that you can ever have as a human being is to experience God's love for you. And how do we fight this war on loves when there's so much from the outside calling for us, calling for our hearts? It's to crave the pure spiritual milk, to taste that God is good. You see, you don't have to generate love for God. When you experience being loved by God, it generates the love for God for you. And yes, there's a war going on for your soul. It's not trying to kill you with pain. It's trying to kill you with pleasure. And yes, there's so many forces on the outside crying for your heart's affections trying to capture your first love. But there is another good life. There is the best life. A life where day in and day out, your love for God grows because you are experiencing God's love for you. Let us all make this our aim. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, boy, do we need your help. I feel the the desires of the flesh so strongly. I know my brothers and sisters here do too. And if I'm honest, God, some part of me wants to love them more than I love you. But because you've given me a new citizenship, there's a part of me that wants to love you more than anything else. And I can't Generate that on my own. But you can. Help us as your sons and daughters to to pause long enough, to pull away from the world long enough to have the best experience we ever could. And when we look for it, God, God, Don't make it too hard to find. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave us the ultimate love to sacrifice your own life so that we might live. Help us to live as citizens of our new kingdom. And God, as we enter into this time of offering... My prayer is that you would bless both the gifts, that they would be multiplied and bear fruit in your kingdom, and that you would bless the givers, that they would be blessed by the freedom that comes from giving things away. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you.